Hello and welcome to I Must Break, this podcast. This is the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Today we're going back to 1989 and taking a look at the fourth film in Lundgren's filmography, The Punisher. In this extremely underrated and hyper-violent gem, Lundgren took on the role of Frank Castle, a former police officer turned vigilante who wages a one-man war on crime as vengeance and punishment for his own family's murder. An adaptation of the Marvel Comics character, the film has been unfairly maligned and scrutinized over the years by critics and comics fans, yet it has so much going for it, especially when compared to the other cinematic interpretations of the character over the years. I'm your host, Sean Malloy, and once again joining me to discuss and deconstruct this film is fellow Dolph fan and scholar Jeremy Damasu. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me again. Hey, Sean, it's a pleasure. Yeah, no, well, I mean, like, like, like I said last time, um, you, it's pretty much always been a given that you're going to be uh, <laughs> helping me out and joining me for uh, quite a few of these episodes, but The Punisher is is one that's uh, uh, pretty near and dear to you. This is, this is kind of your baby. You have um, spent, you know, copious amounts of hours and time uh, researching this film to the extent that uh, you've published a book on the uh, on, on the making of this film, is that correct? Yeah, that uh, it was unexpected actually, it wasn't exactly the plan. Um, I mean, I've been researching every uh, movie that Dolph has made over the years and um, what happened is I, um, 10 years ago, I really started to um, you know, a project, a big project, which would be a, a career book on the behind the scenes of each one of his movies. And uh, I started interviewing a lot of the cast and crew, you know, directors, screenwriters, producers, composers, and whatnot. And um, so obviously, The Punisher was one of them. I think I even. Um, I in interviewed the composer uh, about 15 years ago uh, because I was really looking for a soundtrack which didn't exist at the time and um, you know we met and uh, anyway um, but so the Punisher book happened because I was commissioned um, a booklet for the French edition Blu-ray and somehow you know, I worked on it for a few months and, you know, my work didn't get used. Um, so I decided to to make it a book because I, I hadn't realized that there was so much content and, you know, anecdotes and, you know, uh, preconceived ideas to talk about. And uh, but originally it should have been only like a 30 pages chapter uh, in my Dolph book. Okay. 
Okay. Well, I mean, in the the genesis of the of the film is um is pretty fascinating to take a look at because not only one was this one of um, Lundgren's first movies in his filmography, um, but it, let's face it, it's also one of the very first Marvel comics adaptations um, of one of their characters, um, and that that alone is is also, in my opinion. Um, equally interesting to take a look at as well because you know a lot of people seem to have forgotten these days but you know nowadays <clears throat> Marvel Comics is dominating the box office I mean they have been able to essentially st uh, build their own studio and start producing their own films in-house but before those days before you know um, Anthony Hopkins was Odin and you had all these um, great actors uh, taking over these roles Marvel Comics could not really get a uh, a decent film adaptation made um, of one of their properties, and so The Punisher was one of these one of these small little films that um, you know essentially came and went in uh, on video store shelves and uh, was you know picked apart and and hated by uh, by fans, which is a whole other story that we'll get into. But yeah, th this is this is one of the first. Yeah, but the, what people forget as well is that. Uh, by the time The Punisher and Batman went to production, there was a huge uh, wave of comic book movies that were announced. Um, I mean, originally, you know, we in the past 10 years, we've seen superheroes invading the screen and, and whatnot. But it was like, you know, profited that uh, the year 1989 and 1990 were going to be the, um, you know, uh, the big screen invasion of superheroes and comic book movies. I mean, you had uh, Terry Gilliam was working on Watchmen. Uh, you had an adaptation of Surgeon Rock produced by Joel Silver and starring Arnold, directed by John McTiernan, that was planned. Uh, I mean, there were dozens of projects being developed, um, and uh, it's a whole story of how, you know, most of them didn't happen, although we had, we got Dick Tracy a bit later, and, you know, um, The Crow, or The Shadow, and stuff like that, but, um, and uh, the other thing is that Marvel, uh, in the mid-80s, was in big trouble actually. Uh, I mean, they were close to being bankrupt. And um, what ha what happened was, New World Pictures, who was originally the company founded by Roger Corman, uh, and had then be sold. It was sold to some uh, entertainment lawyers who wanted to break into the um, the business. So Roger Corman had left. And the new owners of New World, in 1986, uh, I mean, it was uh, um, a small company in a way. They were producing a lot of, you know, exploitation, horror movies and genre movies. And they did a Hellraiser and um, stuff like that. But at the same time, they were uh, now they were trying to expand and go into television and, and everything. And so by 1986, they actually bought Marvel. So Marvel was owned by New World Pictures. And I mean, this was, 
today it, it, it couldn't happen that such a you know an independent company like that could buy um, such a landmark such as uh, Marvel well not only that but the fact that they bought them so cheaply yeah I mean well, let's face it they, they, they bought Marvel for, for yeah. pennies and, and no way could something like that happen right nowadays. and you know they bought it for like between 30 and 50 million and you know 20 years later Disney bought it for 4 billion Oh, exactly, exactly. Well, and you know, and New World Pictures, I'm glad you brought that up because, yeah, so the film was produced and distributed by the company New World Pictures, which um, was this, you know, small little grindhouse um, exploitation uh, company that, that, that did a ton of, uh, excuse me, that did a ton of horror movies. You mentioned Hellraiser. Um, they, they, they did a... I mean, they, they, there's a lot of films in their in their catalog that are um, extremely interesting. Uh, there, there's one that I just want to throw out there and mention. Um, there's one that they did back in 1989 as well with C. Thomas Howell called uh, Soul Man with Ray Don Chong and, uh, and James Earl Jones. And you watch that film and no way would a film like that get made nowadays. Um, it, it's it's a, it's attempting to be a comedy, but you have a uh, a Caucasian character essentially wearing blackface throughout the film. Um, you know, it, it, it makes sense that it came from uh, from New World because, like I said, they were this uh, kind of um, uh, grindhouse company that kind of did things a little off, off the beat. But yeah, the film Soul Man is, don't get me wrong, there are some funny elements in it, but... Um, no, no way would a movie like that get made. <laughs> that would, would it get made seen nowadays? It actually, but you know, you can see in the eighties uh, and even early nineties, so many movies that were made wouldn't made wouldn't be made today, or not in the same way, not the, with the same quirkiness or humor, or sometimes uh, you know a kind of violence or bleakness and. Um, so they would try to do the same today and it really doesn't feel um, like it's done right um, so yeah but uh, what's interesting about the Punisher if we go back to that is that um, even though they had the rights they had the rights to you know many Marvel characters I think it was about like 900 um, uh, except for Spider-Man and Captain America because they were uh, the rights for the adaptation were at Canons but the Punisher um, the studio actually didn't they didn't say let's make a, m a movie about the Punisher um, uh, people assumed that it was their plan initially that it was a big um, a big plan but what happened was it was the, the screenwriter Boaz Yakin uh, who became a um, director as well who brought the project to them uh, he was a big comic fan and a big Punisher fan and um, he met with one of the executives at New World when he heard that they had the rights and um, actually it was the director of Hellraiser 2 Tony Randall who didn't know who didn't even know who the Punisher was and luckily what happened was that Boaz Yakin he was very young he was about 21 22 and he was mentored by Robert Markeman the writer of the Karate Kid and nowadays the collaborator of Luc Besson 
and um, so they were a kind of they had a kind of mentor um, French you know friends relationships so uh, when Boaz Yakin told that to Robert Kamen um, he said well that's interesting because I got a development deal at New World um, so Kamen came back to New World because he was very interested in the Punisher and so he went back to the studio pitched, pitched it to them and that's how it got started and Boaz Yakin then managed to um, get the job to write the the full screenplay right well and you know um, if you look at uh, the catalog of films that uh, that came out of New World Pictures and then if you look at The Punisher I mean it, it makes sense that uh, that that Punisher came came from them because I mean everything about the film definitely I would say fits within their within their wheelhouse and you know especially the opening scenes of the Punisher the opening scenes are um, and we're gonna be getting to this here soon I imagine um, but I always felt the opening scenes are almost a little disturbing and bizarre in a lot of ways you know the way uh, uh, Castle is dispatching uh, members of the mob inside this mansion or whatever and so yeah definitely I always felt it definitely fits within that uh, within that mold of, of New World Pictures, you know, if you're going to look at all of the characters that they could have done an adaptation of um, that came from Marvel Comics, you know, the Punisher is the one that um, I always felt made the most sense and, and like I said, fit within their their mold and their uh, their, their prototype um, uh, type yeah, of films. Yeah, uh, it definitely looks like it. Uh, and at the same time, they, they were, they wanted to do a, a whole lot of other Marvel movies since they had bought them um, but the problem then was that how could you do this right I mean most of them were superheroes that needed proper special effects and you know the the, the thing about the Punisher it, it was easy to do because he doesn't have any superpowers and you know he's not even a, a superhero per se um, so you didn't have to mm -hmm. think about the visual effects uh, whereas for most of them uh, the technology wasn't there or you know the blue screen or green screen uh, wasn't necessarily um, gonna do it right you know um, so it was a big question and I think uh, they, they toyed around with them for a while before they sold the company again, they sold Marvel again um, pretty soon because they, they actually couldn't really use the catalog as you know they should have um, and uh, but they were developing a lot of television shows um, and also they almost bought Kenner uh, Parker toys and they tried to get Mattel um, so the, it's kind of like they had the new guys at New World kind of had the vision for what the, the entertainment would be today with like you know um, multi-platform um, properties that would cross and you know use all you can get from merchandising to um, movies and TV shows and whatnot but uh, I think it was the the timing that was a little off.
Well, and you know, um, the, the film is is definitely, I would say, extremely gritty. Um, especially if you watch it nowadays, just the cinematography. It it has this this really um, grindhouse, you know, gritty um, look and feel to it um, that I think definitely helps set it apart uh, from the other interpretations and the other adaptations of the character. Because let's face it, um, the character of the Punisher has been reinterpreted and reimagined over the years. Um, again in 2004 with the uh, Thomas Jane, John Travolta version. Then again in 2008 uh, starring Ray Stevenson. And now it's a, uh, a popular Netflix series starring John Bernthal. Um, you know, my own personal biases aside, because this is a, a Dolph Lundgren uh, podcast, I would say, you know, it's, it's, been, it's one of those films that has gotten, like I said earlier, maligned and picked apart by the fans, you know, due to the fact that he doesn't have the skull, you know, all the humanity, he doesn't have the skull. Um, but I always felt that it, it's been unfairly picked on. And what's really cool is it feels like within recent years, there's kind of been a, uh, a 180 on the film, and it seems like it's now finally getting appreciated as not just being a good film, but as being one of the best adaptations of the character. Would, yeah, would yeah, exactly. I mean, first of all, I think the, um, you know, most of the people um, who saw it back in the day, you know, grew up on it, and maybe for a long time they didn't they didn't even want to say they, they they enjoyed it, so they 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 came out, and and at the same time, like you said, the other adaptations, especially since the 2004 movie, um, the 1981, 89, uh, really got reevaluated in a in a positive way, and I mean, if you really watch it in in um in the most objective way because I see online a lot of comments saying you know it looks like a generic 80s action flick rather than a Punisher film and uh, even uh, like yesterday I saw someone posting on Twitter that uh, Dolph looked like a Ken, a Ken doll uh, compared to John Berthold and I'm like you know he doesn't look like He-Man in that one. He's not even close to Red Scorpion. I mean, he's pale, he's dirty, he's sick and demented. And um, but yeah, coming back to the the how dark it is, you know, the director Mark Goldblatt, he's a huge cinephile, and he especially likes exploitation movies from the 60s and the 70s, um, and he really. That's the thing. Um, you can also dice on the the cinematography, um, but the 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 idea really to make it a film noir, um, almost in the way of a a Fritz, Fritz Lang movie. Um, so they didn't want it to be pleasant. They didn't want it to be flashy or you know with like blue neons like in in a lot of 80s movies and stuff. Um, and um, and they had like a, uh, if you look at the crew, it was like the top no top notch crew you could get in Australia because the film was shot in Australia. Well, yeah, and you know, I mean, it definitely it is a, a comic book film that kind of falls within that uh, within that 
you know category. Um, I would say that if you're not a comic book fan at at all, or if you didn't, if you're if you're coming into this back in 1990, uh, 90, 91 when this was released, and you had no idea that it's based on a comic book, or you know, no care about that at all, then I'd say you still can enjoy it on on a different level because it does almost have um, well, it is like a death wish type film. You know, like I said, it's that it's that gritty, dirty, um, you know, type of film. Um, where the you know your protagonist your character is very similar to that um, Paul Kersey type you know what I mean yeah and, and I mean it's um, like for instance compared to other action movies of the time um, if you go you know to the end of the movie uh, it stays really dark unlike you know it doesn't go for a finally that you're gonna cheer for the hero or you're gonna be you know uh, we won kind of thing um, yeah. so it's very melancholic which really wasn't get done much at the time and now um, has been used in in recent movies actually uh, so it in a way it was almost in advance for its time um, I you know I saw it uh, I didn't I didn't know the comic before the movie was announced um, there was a lot of coverage for the film in France um, almost a year before the release so we got lots of photos lots of articles and interviews with Dolph um, ahead of the release and um, you know and I was interested in it just because it had Dolph and I had seen Masters of the Universe and Red Scorpion and I gotta say I was a 10 year old kid and um, I actually managed to see it in the theater um, whereas the movie was restricted under the age of 13 um, but so at that age you can tell that um, that definitely left me an impression because because of its tone because of how really different it is from anything else you know um, from the music and you know some of the dialogues and um, I think the characters as well and just you know there's a few character moments in it it's not it's not a silly slash and burn kind of thing well you're exactly right and you know one of the other things as well is yeah like we like we've established it is based on a comic book character you know um, but comic book based movies have come such a long way since uh, since when this first came out. You know, nowadays, you know, uh, you know, like we talked about, um, Marvel is now able to produce all of their own films and distribute them in house, um, and so they're being extremely faithful to the source material, material even up to the costumes. But at the time, um, a lot of people have seemed to have forgotten these days. But it was difficult to. Adapt a adapt a comic book on screen. It's almost kind of like producers were a little uh, shy and un you know entirely unclear on how to adapt adapt a character. Um, you, you wouldn't see the characters adapted 100% in terms of the costumes because you know that that would look a little silly on screen. So you know, um, and you mentioned the Crow and everything. You know, the Crow and some of those other films that came out in the um, early to mid 90s. But yeah, it was still a fairly rocky time to produce and um, 
distribute and release a film based on on a comic book. Now, some could say, you know, well, Batman did it, but if you look at the original Batman, uh, you know, done by Tim Burton and everything, that one took this character that, let's face it, everyone had at the time, um, everyone's memory was pretty much the, the 1960s silly, campy uh, television right. series. And so, yeah, Tim Burton, you know, he really amped it up and made it this dark, um, you know, uh, nightmare in a lot of ways. And so, I think... Um, Punisher, you know, while they were in produ- it was in production around the same time, it's also kind of hitting upon that. How do you take this, how do you take a character that is, you know, that came to life in the pages of a comic book, but make him seem relevant and real and where it's not going to alienate all, all of the viewers, you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, and like you said, you know, because they wanted it to play for an adult audience and they didn't, they wanted it to be dark, to be violent, you know, it wasn't supposed to be a kids' movie, and um, so yes, they 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 didn't uh, use the skull too prominently on his chest because they were afraid. Um, they thought it it, it 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 might be be a little silly, and you can argue with that. Um, and also, um, they weren't trying to make a comic book; they were trying to make a film. And in a way, maybe comic book movies today are most faith- more faithful, but at the same time, it's so faithful that it's too literate. So it, it you know, um, so in a way, it lacks in creativity or in, you know, charm. Um, and at the same time, I can argue that you know, when Boaz Yakin wrote the script, there were a lot of elements that he justified um, to reference the, the, the comics. Um, like, for instance, you know, um, 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 people say, you know, um, in the movie, Frank Castle is a cop uh, and not a, a former um, military special forces guy but in the script initially um, the idea was that he had been in Vietnam and when he came back he became a cop and um, uh, but there's a, a chunk of dialogue about his background that got um, sliced um, and um, it was these sort of things that were in the in the script and the monologues when he's in the 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 sewers talking to god uh it was supposed to be a narration throughout the film as if it was the punisher war journal but instead of you know having a journal he's just kind of meditating and having these monologues uh thinking he's addressing to god um many many little details like that well you know um as we get into the film uh one of the things that uh that i would that, that i've always thought was a really interesting um and unique touch on behalf of uh on behalf of the filmmakers is the opening title sequence uh the opening title sequence is so surreal you know it's this expanding multicolored iris populated with just random images of crime and criminals etc 
And then you get these uh, these stock images of various gangsters getting shot to pieces, literally by the same three shots of of Dolph Lundgren. Um, it's definitely unique, I, I would say. Um, but the one thing I was going to say about the the opening title sequence is, as unique it is, I always felt it would work perfectly for the opening title sequence for a television series because you know you're getting these stock you know villain characters, you know you're getting some gangsters and some random street thugs and you know a couple martial artist type figures but I always felt that the opening title sequence if it was truncated and if it was shortened and just you know the fact that you get these images of of Dolph as, as the Punisher you know blowing away these these figures as they're shattering in the glass I always thought um, you know it, it's fun for the film but if this was a potential TV series I always felt it would lend itself so much better to that yeah I, I didn't think about it this way uh, the way I see it, it's it's a kind of uh, a way to inscribe the the film into a comic book reality. And what they had in mind was, you know, the openings of the the Hitchcock movies by Saul Bass, or the James Bond films by Morris Binder. Um, so that was that was the idea, and and, and still, um, you know, it does. I think it doesn't feel very TV for me, because it's it's it, because of the way it's so greedy and everything. Uh, but I I definitely see what you mean. Yeah, it's 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 like I said, it's just a very interesting and unique um, you know creative decision on behalf of those who were putting the film together because I would say it's probably there, there's only just a couple scenes in the film that you know kinda help remind you that this is a comic book based film or this is a film based on a comic book property the opening title sequence I would say is one of those few elements other than that I would say this is um, essentially a, uh, a, a Death Wish type movie which is not discrediting it or knocking it down um, by any means but that that's always the the feel that I felt um, the film has provided. Yeah, but I mean, in those days, I don't see what else they they could have done to make it more like a comic book movie, um, except if it was actually uh, playing more with the costumes and the set design. But this is what they they actually wanted to avoid because I don't think they could have put it off without being a little. Um, a little kitschy or silly. Well, yeah, and like like we've established, you know, it was a different time for comic book based movies, you know, around around this era. You know what I mean? And you look at nowadays Thor Ragnarok, you know, that that's currently in theaters. I mean, this is a that, that's a comic book that is essentially brought to life. I mean, the only thing missing in that film are the panels. You, you know what I mean? And but you know, around 1989, 1990, um, they didn't want to do that. They couldn't do that, and I would say rightfully so. But um, but yeah, definitely the opening shot. I'm glad you mentioned Hitchcock because it is extremely Hitchcock in a sense. Um, the other thing I love, so if we get past the opening title sequence, the very first time we see the Punisher, I, I always love the way they introduce the Punisher and they bring him on screen because they really establish that he is this uh, mythic um, phantom. Uh, creature of a sort, you know. The very first time we see him, it's pretty much just a shot of his boot um, as he's on a motorcycle, and we get to see one of those trademark knives that is emblazoned with the skull. Um, and we really don't even get to see his face until you know a few more shots in. They, they, the the director and the editing almost kind of tease 
the fact that you know Castle is like like I said this phantom figure who is exacting vengeance he's exacting punishment on all these figures who rightfully deserve it right and remember he's supposed he's presumed to be dead and um, and at the same time he is you know mentally dead you know Frank Castle is dead so um, it really goes with it and at the same time helps building uh, uh, like the, the first killing scene you know to be sort of like a suspense uh, almost in a kind of uh, Friday the 13th way um, oh it's disturbing like that like you know yeah a slasher movie oh yeah the opening scenes the, these early scenes of Castle uh, the Punisher however you want to refer to him uh, dispatching members of this crime family like, like you said, I'm glad you brought up the, the Friday the 13th of the Slasher, because it is, I always felt these opening scenes are a little unsettling and disturbing, especially the fact that we never see the Punisher. Um, the film does a fantastic job of establishing um, that he is this figure that is presumably dead, um, but, you know, th there's someone, someone's alive, and someone is, you know, <laughs> is killing these, uh, these members of these families and weakening them to the extent that, the, that he is. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that I feel we almost have to talk about because, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the, the fanboys and the, um, the, the comic book fans, the fact that they did not um, put the skull on the costume. Like I said, it, at this point, I feel like it's kind of a moot point, but throughout the 90s, anytime this film was mentioned, it was always, oh yeah, the Punisher film where he doesn't have the skull. How dare could they do a Punisher film without the skull? Um, they, they do touch upon that a little bit. I mean, like as we said, that the knives that um, that are emblazoned with the, uh, the, the the skull on the top, and then um, Dolph's five o'clock shadow that they that they employ on him kind of um, uh, slightly resembles a, a skull in some kind of way. So they do try and touch upon that um, slightly. It was never a huge deal to me, especially as a little kid when I first saw this film. But right for me, me neither. I mean, like I said, I. I didn't. I wasn't a fan of the comic originally, so uh, I didn't mind. And um, I mean, it was it was a motion picture. It was an adaptation. And adaptation means you got to go beyond the source material to translate it to the new medium. And um, you know, I'm glad you brought up the the uh, the kind of uh, makeup that he has on his face that I think some people also make fun of like how it's kind of like a, um, uh, a fake a ridiculous fake stubble beard um, but I think that I mean clearly that was the, the point was to emulate some sort of skull figure on his face. Well, and yeah, and I never really looked at it as, um, even as, as, a, as a young child when I saw the film, I never really looked upon it as a five o'clock shadow or a beard any, or anything like that. I just looked at it, you know, this is a guy who is living in the sewers, and so he is dirty. He is greasy, and he is grimy. And, exactly. Yeah. I will yeah. say, you know, as you watch the film nowadays, <clears throat> and since it's gotten these uh, uh, high, higher definition transfers and everything, I mean, unfortunately here in the U.S. it hasn't really had a, um, a special edition blue release, but it does have the... Uh, the uh, DVD release put out by Artisan, who's now Lionsgate. Um, but I will say, as you watch it nowadays on high-def TVs, um, you know, my as I was watching it the other day, um, my wife came in the room 
and you know she's never seen the film or anything like that. And she did ask me as she walked in the room, "Why is Dolph Lundgren wearing makeup?" <laughs> and so I did have to kind of explain to her. So that is one of the things that um, I, I kind of wonder as you watch it nowadays, especially on you know high def TVs and these transfers. If that's one of the things that maybe does not hold up 100% well, like it um, may have about you know 15, 20 years ago, but still, I always thought it was a it was a fun, interesting, creative decision. Yeah, that's that's interesting because I really never saw it that way. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, and going to the casting of Dolph real quick. This is something else that um, that I was hoping you might be able to shed light on. Um, but I always thought the casting of Dolph around this time was definitely inspired and interesting casting, you know, because around this time, if you look at, if you look at Lundgren around this time, you know, he had gone from playing Ivan Drago, who was this larger-than-life superhuman villain, to He-Man, again, a larger-than-life, you know, American, you know, iconic toy hero, and then he went to Red Scorpion, which also was this um, just kind of bulky, larger-than-life figure. Um, at, now, nowadays I look at it and, you know, it, it's one of the early films of Dolph and, and I love it. But I'm trying to think, I'm trying to put myself into the uh, mindset of, um, of a fan back in the late 80s, early 90s. Dolph Lundgren, considering everything that he had come from, you know, beforehand, I don't think he was really one of the first choices that you would picture and that you would envision as playing the role of Frank Castle. Frank Castle is this... First of all, you know, let, let's let's say it, let's address it. You know, Frank Castle is this, you know, American hero. He's extremely slender. He's extremely lean. Um, whereas Dolph at the time was, you know, this big muscular, you know, dude from Sweden. He does a great job in the role. I don't know if at the time he's one of the first actors who I would have envisioned as taking on the role of Frank Castle. According to IMDb, there's various rumors that. I guess Michael Pere was uh, was one of the ones considered, um, but uh, anything that you can shed light on the uh, on the casting of Dolph? Well, first of all, I'll tell you right now, uh, the Michael Pere thing is a rumor that apparently doesn't uh, doesn't want to be taken off. So he he was not approached, and Mark Goldblatt told me and actually met Michael Perret on the set of Direct Contact with Dolph uh, and I, I so I I talked to him about it and he said no you know this is this was just a rumor. Okay. Um, but uh, Dolph actually wasn't the first he was one of the top of the list um, you know they had a, a list of like I don't know five uh, ten actors that the, the studio was willing to do the movie with but one interesting thing um, that I'll reveal to you is that the producer Robert Kamen originally wanted Christopher Lambert to play the role. Interesting. Okay, that that would have been wild to see. <laughs> yeah, and honestly, I think I don't know. Maybe it would have been good, but it sounds really weird. Even though I, you know, he was the the, the Highlander and. And whatnot, but I, I don't exactly see him in that role. Uh, but they talked to him, um, you know, they were really trying to get him on, but um, for several reasons it didn't happen. And so then one of the top choices was Dolph. So they they went to Dolph, who 
um, wasn't very, you know, it was just like with Masters of the Universe. He, you know, when he heard the Punisher, he didn't know the comic, and it sounded a, a little corny for him. Um, but then he read the script and he really liked it. And what he was really into was that this was a role where, for the first time of his career, he was playing an American. Right. And 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 he had the chance to uh, really um, work on his craft as an actor because um, it had some really dramatic scenes and he had the opportunity to play some kind of schizophrenic psycho um, and also um, you know they added um, some early scenes in a prologue where he would be this normal guy with his family and everything and that was also a challenge uh, I think th these were some of his favorite scenes because he could act with like having daughters and having a wife and and whatnot so it, it had a lots of challenges for Dolph and he was aware that um, it might be limited but at the stage of, of his career it could also help him get better roles and he, he was hoping that the movie would um, do good um, at the box office and maybe bring him uh, some more interesting material to to work on because he didn't you know people assume but especially at that time he did not want to stay typecast as an action star he wanted to do dramatic roles he wanted to do comedies uh, he w just wanted to do what any normal actor well, no would do. and you know these um, if, if you look at excuse me if you look at the, the effort that Delphon can put into the role I mean he is going he's essentially going method with with his performance in this role I mean you know he dyes his hair he dyes his hair jet yeah, exactly. black, but I mean he dropped a ton of weight for this role. If you look at him compared from when he did Masters yep. of the Universe and Red Scorpion, I mean he just has this. His figure has this V shape to him. I mean he is extremely he's extremely jacked and he's extremely um, you know physically fit. He is still physically fit in The Punisher, but I mean he drops a ton of weight. Um, I believe he got down to his um, his original weight when he was a karate champion. I mean he is extremely lean in this film and yeah he he dropped about 30 pounds I yeah think. so he drops all this weight and you know if you look at his eyes um one of the things i read um online on imdb's trivia so i don't know if you can um <laughs> confirm this or not but i guess he went without sleep to kind of help achieve achieve that that look that he carries in the film well I, i'm not sure about the sleep thing although i can tell that on a shoot you know he never sleeps much uh, so he can sleep four or five hours a night um, but what I was told and what he kind of said but it, it's kind of um, it's it, it's to take with a pinch of salt but uh, you know everybody said he was a very nice guy on the set and everything but there were moments where he would kind of hang out by himself on the set to stay in the mind of, of the character and focus and like you said almost be like a method actor and stay in the 
the same frame of mind and almost kind of scare people around, you know? Oh yeah, yeah, and you know it's really I'm I'm glad that the, the these deleted scenes were able to pop up on YouTube about you know six seven years ago. Um, but yeah, we get these opening expository scenes um, that show Castle before he became the Punisher, and thankfully they're available on YouTube. Um, they were excised from the film. As I watch the film, it makes sense. I'm kind of glad that they were that they were taken out. But there is about not not many people uh, realize this, but there is about a good, I'd say, almost 20 minutes of footage that they that they cut out that show Castle um, before he becomes the Punisher. When the film when the film first starts in the in the cut that we have, I mean, he is like like I said, he's this phantom character who's exacting punishment on on all these various figures. It's it's almost very slasher-ish in a way. Um, but yeah. In these deleted scenes, we get to see um, Dolph Lundgren before he becomes the Punisher, and you know he is Frank Castle as this family man. We get to see the relationship that he has with Louis Gossett Jr.'s character, Jake Berkowitz. Um, it, it, in a lot of ways, it kind of comes off as being a lethal weapon knockoff, and you know, in some ways. But we get to see some real acting from Dolph, considering where he had come from in Masters of the Universe and Red Scorpion. And as we see him in these opening scenes, he is really he's really bringing it, and he's really um, delivering some uh, some great acting. Like I said, I think it's it's wise that they cut it because it it almost um, is a different film entirely. But I will say it was a shame for Dolph because you know, here he had this opportunity to show audiences that he can act, and they unfortunately leave these leave these scenes on the cutting room floor. Yeah, and I'll say a few things about that. Uh, well, uh, one thing that was a shame is that he actually performed a very high fall in those scenes where he has to jump from, you know, um, how do you say, uh, it's kind of a high ceiling onto a boxing ring. Uh, and it's like, I don't know, um, between 20 40 feet uh, and he kind of hurt his back doing that and the scene was cut off <laughs> uh, so, so he was a bit uh, disappointed about that um, uh, the other thing I wanted to say yeah regarding his acting I recommend to watch the original ending which is almost the same as the the final cut but uh, one thing is that they added some fighting in the final cut they reshot some stuff and adding a fight uh, but what I wanted to mention is the um, the last moments uh, that the Punisher has with the son of the Mafia boss Tommy Franco um, in the original ending um, which was essentially the same thing where the kids uh, wants to shoot uh, Frank Castle and is about to point it um, to his forehead and you know in in the um, the final cut the Punisher just says you know um, go ahead um, you know shoot me but in, in a very subtle way whereas in the original ending that they shot he went completely psycho you know screaming to shoot his brain off and, and stuff like that and and you can tell in, in this performance 
it's almost like a pre-Universal Soldier uh, performance by Dorf. It, it's it, it's very similar to some of the scenes of uh, Andrew Scott in Universal Soldier. Oh yeah, I mean you know he, he's he's really diving into this role. Um, but yeah, in these opening scenes, you really it establishes you know that he has this relationship with his partner played by Luke Gossett Jr., who we haven't gotten to yet. Um, but yeah, they it, it's it's a shame that they that they took them out of the film. Again, I can understand why, because it does kind of slow down the film. And I will say it right now, um, having seen the, uh, the 2004 film version with Thomas Jane, I, and maybe I'm in the minority on this one, I'm not a fan of that film, really, you know, at all. I mean, it has a few good things going for it, um, but I would say one of the things that definitely brings the film down is that film decides to put in the backstory. So the entire first act of the film is we see, you know, Thomas Jane's, you know, uh, performances as, as Frank Castle, and we get to see his family, and things are all happy and everything. And then the film shifts gears. I don't think Punisher is a is a character who I really want to see that backstory from. I, I feel like, and this is just my opinion, but I feel like Punisher is a better character if his backstory is if we know his backstory, but if it's shown briefly in flashbacks. I don't really need to see that huge 180 transformation. Yeah. Well, this was actually one thing I forgot to say is that um, you know, when the, the, the movie was in pre-production that was, that was one of the things that people argued about because um, the original script that Boaz Yakin had wrote um was the exact same way it opened with the Punisher and you learn through various flashbacks uh, a little more than in the final movie uh, what happened to him and it was like a, a sort of once upon a um, once upon a time in the West kind of reveal towards the second act where you saw a whole scene where it was different from the movie where um, Gianni Franco ambushed Castle and his family and Castle is forced to witness the, the killing of his family who are trapped in his car and um, I don't remember I think they get burned down yeah. or something uh, I have to reread the, the, the script but anyway that was the original idea and then the studio um, wasn't so sure about I mean they wanted to, to add this background story and um, Robert came and wanted it as well um, so he added he reworked the, he you know uh, Boaz Yakin left uh, came and um, rewrote the script so he added all those scenes and this prologue uh, but ultimately, after they did uh, one or two test screenings and the movie was in its early stages of uh, editing, um, they, they realized how it didn't work because it was like two separate movies and so they got rid of them. But so it's ironic how, you know, they came back to the original structure that it was supposed to be. 
Yeah, no, it is extremely ironic. And the other thing that I always thought was interesting as well is, um, you know, uh, Chris, who has been on um, some of the uh, previous episodes of the show, he wrote a wonderful essay. Um, I wonder if there's a way I can find it to link it um, in the notes for this episode. But he wrote a wonderful essay on the um, on what it was like finding this film on video in the United States in the uh, in the early 90s. And one of the things that I vividly and distinctly remember is seeing this film on on video. You know, this is before the age of, of DVD and everything. And, you know, this is actually before the age of deleted scenes, the way deleted scenes are so readily available, you know, nowadays. But I distinctly remember um, getting the VHS copy and even the DVD copy. If you look at the DVD copy, one of the things I always thought was, was amazing is how there are so many shots of the film on the VHS copy, on the DVD copy, from these prologue scenes. And as a kid, um, I never really understood why. I always wondered where these scenes came from. But if you look at on the VHS copy on the back of the box and on the DVD copy on the on the back of the uh, on the back of the case, you know, you have these shots of uh, of Dolph in a jean jacket, and he's he's standing alongside Lou Gossett Jr. with a uh, with a prostitute who we later find out is also an undercover um, detective. But yeah, I, that was always one of those things that just for years, <laughs> as hard as this is to um, you know fathom thinking about, but for years it's one of those things that always perturbed me that there are these shots on the on the VHS box that unfortunately were not in the film, and so I always wondered are these are these production stills or what is going on? But yeah, these were shots from the prologue which was taken out. Yeah, yeah, I, and I I don't know. I think it's one of those cases where. You know, sometimes the distributors don't pay enough attention, and you know they 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 had their still selections and just took some of them and without realizing that this wasn't in the in the final movie. So no, no. Um, I think that's how it it, it got there. Um, I had a very different experience because, like I said, I. I discovered it when it came out theatrically here and it was actually a, a, a not huge but it was a pretty big release uh, in France actually I think it was the biggest European release um, and uh, and actually Dorf came to France uh, quite a few times before it came out uh, throughout the year and he did tons of promotion uh, for the film I mean he was really proud of the film and uh, wanted to promote it um, because it was a step up for him and um, there's a, there's some funny anecdotes about uh, about all that but uh, you'll get a, a full chapter in the in the book. Well, that's that's right. You know, you got to sell your book as well. So I don't want you to give too much, <laughs> too much information away. But um, but yeah, my experience with the film um, was different than yours, and it's actually pretty similar to uh, Chris's experience as well. Because the United States really did not get a uh, well, we didn't get a theatrical release. And you know, this is you know this is the early '80s, so you know, home video was king, was was big. Um, but you know. If a film was being made, you know, we didn't have the internet or anything like that, you know, at the time. So if a film was being made, you pretty much, you know, read about it briefly in like a, a trade magazine of some kind. Maybe you saw a still, but then you just didn't hear anything. And so, you know, I remember The Punisher, you know, was announced, 
Um, but then, uh, you know, years went by where you heard absolutely nothing. And so it didn't get a theatrical release due to the, uh, the bankruptcy of New World Pictures. Um, it did, however, get a home video release. Now, at the time, um, home video, like I said, was king. And so I do remember this got a pretty, um, a pretty big, wide push on, on home video. I distinctly remember seeing a, uh, a huge display for it um, at, at my local video store. I distinctly remember seeing a, uh, a cardboard cutout of, um, of, of Lundgren at, you know, in, in that, you know, in that shot of him standing by the motorcycle. Um, so yeah, it was a uh, it was a pretty sizable push on home video, and I believe it was I believe it did extremely well um, in rentals. I will say, however, it took me it took me forever to finally be able to see this because I was about you know eight nine years old um, when this was on video, and so you know it was always <laughs> you know my my parents let me read comic books, obviously let me read the Punisher comic book, but here was a movie an adaptation of of one of uh, one of the characters who I read, and it was rated R, so I was not allowed to see right. it. Finally, I was able to. Um, I, I definitely can understand why um, why my parents <laughs> uh, did not let me see this for the longest time because uh, R rating aside, yeah, like like we talked about, it is it is extremely violent. I mean, this this thing is hyper violent. So um, that always made sense. But yeah, that that was my experience with the film uh, early on. Yeah, I, I'd like to come back on on the uh, the American release because that's such a shame. It didn't get a theatrical release. It was planned for theatrical. Um, actually, they even show a teaser trailer in American cinemas right after they shot the movie. So before, when you went to see, I got people who reported to me that they were. Um, in New York watching Hellraiser 2 uh, and um, so this was like December 1988 the, the movie was barely um, he had wrapped a couple of months before and it was in post-production and so you had like a 40 seconds teaser trailer um, without any dialogue very atmospheric uh, I think you can um, you can see a version of it on on YouTube, um, and so it was supposed to come out in the summer '89. And what happened? It, it's the whole thing about the 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 companies linked to the to the movie. Um, New World didn't actually get bankrupt yet. Uh, I mean. The company was only bankrupt in 1996, if you can believe it. But they, they, the 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 CEOs um, sold the company to uh, some billionaire who owned tons of companies like Revlon and Gillette and 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 stuff like that. And so um, the new owners. Um, weren't interested in the theatrical business anymore and the film was on the shelves for months and months and then it got sold to um, right. live home video um, who became artisan later and um, and so they they released it on home video and uh, there's this anecdote from the director 
who spoke to one of uh, the executives uh, about the possibility of having even a limited theatrical release and he was told that uh, they could do it only if the director paid for the prints and advertising which is huge <laughs> to take by yourself and he didn't have that kind of money so it was obviously out of the question but uh, um, the movie was released theatrically almost everywhere else you know um, in Europe and Asia uh, I think it was pretty big in, in Japan um, so it, it, it's really a shame I mean unfortunately for Dolph the other place that the movie couldn't come out was Sweden um, and uh, the Punisher was actually banned in Sweden for pretty much 20 years until or more until the, the movie came out on Blu-ray um, but so so yeah the, the ultimately the, the film only came out on, on VHS and Laserdisc in the States and uh, by the same token Mark Goldblatt had to go back to editing instead of uh, trying to direct more because if your movie didn't come out in the theaters it was kind of you know nobody cared or the kinds of offers that you received were not interesting enough um, so that he would uh, want to do it. Um, oh, it was it, yeah. yeah, it was definitely a tough time um, for for filmmakers back in this back in this era because I believe it was around it was around this period where you know by Hollywood standards, as far as Hollywood was, Hollywood was concerned, um, you were pretty much given a three strike rule where if you're you know if you you know you delivered. Three films that did not um, that did not you know meet expectations or whatever um, at the time. Then you were pretty much you know done as as far as you know as far as it goes to directing. And so yeah, Mark Goldblatt, who has had an extremely impressive career um, in, in terms of film editing. I mean, he, it's a, he's an extremely accomplished uh, film editor. Um, but yeah, his his only two directing credits were you know The Punisher. And Dead Heat with uh, Joe Piscopo and Treat Williams, and unfortunately, um, both of those films uh, were distributed by New World. So, um, so th that that's an interesting little fact as well. Yeah, well, actually, even more interesting is that uh, Mark Goldblatt started his career at New World uh, back in the days of Roger Corman. Uh, this is where he got his first job as a production assistant on a Joe Dante film and later on uh, he's starting his editing career um, working with Joe Dante again for Piranha and um, so he did a, a couple of movies there he did a couple of Canon movies until he got the call for The Terminator and of course James Cameron and his producer Gale and Heard were also alumni from New World Pictures. Okay, okay. Well, you know, and it, it's it's you know, it just it really does suck for Dolph because if you look at these the early you know the early stages in his career, and that's one of the things that I keep coming back to 
in each episode. But yeah, if you look at the early stages in, in Lundgren's career, you know, these early films that he had done, each film he was latching onto um, because it did have promise and it did have opportunity to kind of um, elevate him to the big leagues of, uh, of, you know, Sylvester Stallone and Schwarzenegger. And unfortunately, just due to the production issues and the handling of uh, the handling of these films, um, Dolph was unfortunately a uh, uh, caught in the uh, in the middle, and unfortunately, the film the films did not latch on, and you know his he he kind of was relegated to the to the direct video realm. Um, yeah, so if you look at you know Masters of the Universe, for example, you know that was uh, that was done by Canon, so that right there was a, a knock against the film. Unfortunately, you uh, then he went to Red Scorpion, which we talked about last time. That had its own issues. So then he goes to the Punisher, and so like I said, you know this is at the time, you know this is kind of that three strike rule, you know that was kind of employed back then. You know he had you know three big opportunities that um, that were not his fault or anything like that. Nothing. Dolph did absolutely nothing wrong, but the uh, the companies handling them, you know, they they didn't have their their stuff together and they didn't handle it right in terms of distribution, and um, you know that, that that's kind of what happened to Dolph's career at the time. Yeah, although um, what probably worked in his favor at the time was that um, by the time that he shot. Dark Angel or I Come in Peace, uh, neither Red Scorpion or The Punisher had been released yet. So uh, he was he was still one of the rising names and in the in the action genre and one name that they knew sold very well um, in international distribution. So the, the the financing was wasn't too hard at the time, um, right? But uh, but yeah, ultimately these films um, never really got where they they should have been and never really propelled Dolph to uh, um, to better things. And I think The Punisher, which makes sense. Um, it was expected to make of Dolph what the Terminator did for Arnold. It, you know, in a in a way that we could remember Dolph as like being the Punisher. You know. Yeah, um, and, and talk about a great opportunity, though. I mean, you know, because if this had if this had clicked and if this had you know had um, more financing and distribution behind it, then yeah, it could have been um, Dolph's version of the Terminator or you know Sly's version of Rambo. You know what I mean, right? Yeah. And uh, I, I think if it had, I mean, the way it depends on how many prints it would have gotten. But I mean, Red Scorpion and I Come in Peace got a uh, more than a thousand prints in the U.S. And I'm I'm thinking, had it been released in the the American theaters, uh, it could have done maybe better than than those two. Uh, I think it could have got maybe to twenty million or even thirty million, probably not more. But 
you know, that kind of range. Well, and there's some acting talent that is that is in this. I mean, we haven't talked about it yet, but um, right. if we just look at some of the side characters. So, um, Louis Gossett Jr. portrays the character of Jake Berkowitz, who is Castle's former partner, who's on the who's on the search for uh, the Punisher, who he feels is you know, correctly, Frank Castle. Um, this is at a time where, you know, Lou Gossett Jr., I, I wouldn't say he was a proven box office name. I don't think he was ever really a big name that could, you know, really sell a movie. However, he always kind of lended this respectable um, actor, you know, lens to the film. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, and Lou Gossett Jr. Uh, at the time was still... Um, like you said, a very respected actor, and he was still remembered for his Oscar uh, that he's got for An Officer and Gentleman. So, I mean, of course, he, he wasn't like a, a box office star like Tom Cruise was, but um, he was a respect, you know, respectable name, and to get him on a movie like that for Dolph was was really big and also uh, Jorin Krabbe who's a Dutch actor who came from the, the early Paul Verhoeven's films and um, he was in a, a James Bond movie as well um, he was also uh, you know a, a fine actor that could both of them could you know emulate off and help him to bring up his game, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. And then you also have Barry Otto, who portrays uh, Shake, uh, Castle's homeless, alcoholic, thespian, uh, you know, partner of sorts um, who has his ear to the street. Uh, fun fact regarding Barry Otto that I did not know, but yeah, he is the father of accomplished actress Miranda Otto. So. Yeah, yeah, and he was. Uh, He's probably not very known in in America or Europe, but he's a very big stage actor in Australia and particularly a Shakespearean actor. And um, uh, the idea be behind the character was that he was supposed to talk in in uh, iambic parameters, uh, like a uh, like a Shakespeare character, and. Uh, and also, I think maybe best of all was Kim Miyori as Lady Tanaka. Oh, yes. I think she's just magnificent, and you know uh, she plays with like some sort of class and cruelty, and you know, um, first of all, I don't think it was that common in in those movies to have such a such an arc villain um, and she's also she's also a stage actress uh, most of all and a dancer and uh, I got the chance to um, to interview her and she's a really lovely person you know like the complete opposite of the character and um, and she's brilliant in it. Oh, no, she's amazing in it, and I'm glad that you brought that. So that was going to be my next point. So, yeah, we get to um, who I would say is arguably the main villains of the film. They bring in the Yakuza, because the idea behind it is that, you know, the Punisher has gone on this five-year killing spree, and he has weakened the, these various crime families 
um, these, these crime families and these crime syndicates to such an extent that even though they've joined forces, um, they are still no match for the Yakuza. So the Yakuza comes in and they strong arm them into taking over um, their various operations and in order to get them to comply, they kidnap the children of these mafia families until they do. Um, I always thought that was such a cool idea and a cool concept that that was original. Is that you know here you know here is Frank Castle now having to deal with the effects of uh, of his of his crime spree of his of his five year punishment, and that um, unfortunately innocent lives have been you know have been involved in in the crossfire of this. Like I said, I always thought that was a unique concept. Um, them bringing in the whole Yakuza element and the ninjas. I kind of wonder if that was maybe drawing inspiration from the uh, ninja craze that was brought forth by Cranon, excuse me, Canon around this time, because it, um, it seems like maybe that's what they were trying to do around that time. I don't know, though. No, actually, I'll, I'll tell you where it came from, and that's for all the Punisher fans out there and the comic book fans. Um, first of all, I, I don't think there were too many movies about the Yakuza at the time. Um, Black Rain came out shortly after, and you had, of course, the, the, the film The Yakuza by Sidney Pollack in the 70s. But in American cinema, it, it, it wasn't like we've seen plenty in the 90s, um, but I don't think it was that common, so it was pretty cool. But where the idea came from was uh, I don't know if you read the, the Frank Miller Daredevil comics where the Punisher appeared oh yes yes and you have in those comics you have a criminal Asian cult called the Hand right yes and so that's where Boaz Yakin took the idea from Okay. Um, it, it was kind of to bring the, the same kind of stuff and it was the Yakuza and uh, uh, and um, some other ideas that were very Frank Miller inspired by. Well and it definitely like like I said it, it's um, it's unique and it's a really cool idea it's a really cool concept you know um, Castle now having to deal with you know okay yeah he he did a lot of good in um, exacting revenge and getting some of these criminals off the streets, but unfortunately it brought an even um, deadlier force, um, you know, to the to the states that um, he's having to deal with. I sometimes wonder, and especially on watching this again, um, I don't know if you've ever gotten this vibe, but I sometimes wonder if the whole idea, if this whole plot point of, you know, the, the mafia being weakened to such an extent that, um, that the character is having to deal with um, his actions, I always sometimes wondered if this whole idea would have been more fitting for a sequel. You, you know what I mean? Like I, you know, I, I look at especially on watching it again um, the, um, on my most recent viewing. I almost feel like this version of the Punisher is maybe part two. If maybe there is another version that um, that you know we are missing in a way. Do you, do you, you know what I mean? Yeah, I I know what you mean. I think this is probably. Because of the fact that um, he chose to start it five years after the the death of his family, whereas it could have been, you know, six months later, or so he's already been on a killing spree with the 
with with the mafia and everything. Um, so in a way, you could you could say that those previous five years could be, you know, the prequel or or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but at the same time, it to 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 bring the yakuza into it is a way to um, you know up the stakes and add another element rather than if it was the Punisher just against the the mob. Right, right. Well, and going back to Kim Mori as um, Lady Tanaka, um, th- this is such a this is such a great character. I mean, she is just downright evil, and there are so many little character traits about her that she brings um, that she brings to the film. You know, she has this um, silent adopted daughter who is is a really cool character in a sense. Um, and the other thing, maybe you can shed light on this as well, but one of the things that she wears throughout the film is she wears this thimble on her uh, on her pinky. Now, one of the one of the bits of trivia that is on IMDb is that the scene where Frank Castle is on the stretcher and she, you know, starts, um, you know. Uh, rubbing that thimble um, along his along his torso or whatever, that I guess that was improvised on her behalf because she was so impressed by Lundgren's physique at the time. It, do you know, is there any truth to that at all? I, I don't know, but it, it sounds uh, far-fetched okay. in a way. <laughs> I mean, maybe there's some of that, but the way it it's phrased on IMDb makes it like, oh, you know, she was uh, almost aroused or something. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, so it doesn't sound right, especially when you know both of them. But maybe it was improvised, and maybe they thought it was a, a good idea. Now, what I can say about the pinky is that what she's got is, I believe, uh, because it, it's it's never really. Um, explain, but from other um, other Yakuza films and novels and stuff, you know that they they, they had um, this ritual of like when you commit a mistake, they often cut off their 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 pinky to uh, or not a finger to sort of redeem themselves. Oh yes, yes. Oddly enough, that was done in Showdown a Little Tokyo. This is, yeah, exactly. So that's, this is uh, what it is. So, so she would wear that. And, um, but, uh, yeah. Now, what, what, what was improvised uh, during the, the filming of this torture scene was the, the Batman joke. Okay, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, because it, it wasn't uh, like that in the script, and they actually the Punisher was shot before Batman, um, slightly before. But they 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 knew uh, that Warner Brothers was was gonna make Batman, but they didn't know much of it at all. Like you said, you know, this was far before the the, <laughs> the internet days. Um, Plus, there was very little information coming out of the Batman production. Um, but they, they, I don't know who came up with it. Uh, they just thought it would be a good joke. And, and uh, personally, uh, it still works for me. I don't think there's any 
silliness to it at all or or problems with the fact that Batman is a DC character and not a Marvel character. Uh, I think the joke is quite funny because it's unexpected and uh, and especially from uh, this character. Uh, I think he has a couple of jokes in the movie but this is probably uh, the first or second in the film and it's so out of place um, that I, I don't have any issues with that. Well, and the other scene that I don't have any issues with um, in regarding this uh, torture sequence is, you know, Dolph Lundgren's character just so casually flipping the switch back on before he leaves, leaving the uh, <laughs> leaving the doctor to get pulled apart by that stretcher machine. I love that scene. <laughs> it's it's, it's right. so funny. It's so funny. So, um, yeah. We get such impressive fight scenes as well. Um, you know, this is filmed on a extremely modest budget, but man, do they do they make do they make use of what they have? You know, and so these these action sequences are so well done. Um, the abandoned funhouse scene has some great fighting on on behalf of uh, Lundgren and these these other performers. I guess um, you know they you they utilized real um, Kyushin uh, martial artists. Um, for, for many of the actors and many of these sequences. And so, yeah, all these sequences, you know, the um, the rescue of the children and the fight in the abandoned funhouse, and then later on when uh, when Lundgren teams up with uh, the Gianni character to, um, you know, engage in the assault on the compound, you know, all of these fight scenes, they are, you know, they're extremely gritty, and, you know, maybe by today's standards, the sound effects are a little, a little cheesy by, you know, considering what we have nowadays. But they are they are really bringing it in these sequences, and and Lundgren is he's I mean he's getting to display his his karate training that he has. Um, it, it's full on display here, and we we get some um, the the choreography is just extremely well done. I always felt. Yeah, and uh, actually, you know, um, they were pretty much going full guns. Um, sometimes uh like you said they brought uh you know they went through all the dojos in australia to bring uh martial artists and especially kyokushin karate guys uh Dolph's style of karate is kyokushin kai and it's a very rough full contact style of karate and they even brought up two japanese champions um that they went to find in, in Tokyo, um, and uh, I, you know, Dolph had quite a bit of influence on on those fight scenes, and Robert Kamen, um, who's the writer of the Karate Kid, is also a karate expert, expert, and um, so they wanted to have uh, the most realistic fights as possible. Um, not in the way of, you know, showing off fancy moves and stuff, but being just, you know, mano in mano, brutal. And um, he brought up his old karate instructor uh, who coached him, um, you know, to the European Championships and stuff, and who's been his instructor for since he was a teenager and he's still a good friend with him so um, so you had all these karate guys 
on the set and so most of them had to take a course with the stunt coordinator to um, to learn um, fighting on screen obviously um, but still um, the, the the fights that Dolph had especially with the the two Yakuza bodyguards were um, really rough and I also think that you know the, the um, Dolph of course had done Rocky Four with Stallone and which was also a very um, very rough very tough on-screen fight where you know they, they wouldn't pull any punches when they had to and I think that I'm not sure but I, I would guess maybe Dolph was a bit influenced by that as well in the way that he wanted the fights to be um, as realistic as possible. Oh, it's extremely gritty, and you know the the other the other fight scenes that I just love, and it's one of the fight scenes actually that um, I think is a lot of people's favorite. Um, but the scene where he is fighting um, Lady Tanaka's silent daughter is is just so well done. I mean, you know, the red tint. I mean, I think one of the things that helps sell that that fight is just the red tint lighting that they use in that scene. Um, but besides that. Um, the choreography of that particular scene is extremely well done, and I don't do know too much about that gal who portrays um, Lady Tanaka's daughter, but uh, she's bringing it as well. I mean, she's doing an amazing job in those particular scenes. Yeah, yeah, she. Uh, I think she was doing a bit of acting, but she was primarily a dancer, um, and but she she had. I think they cast her because. You can tell how she has a way of um, moving her body and having a posture and everything. Um, she was doubled a couple of times in the fights, though. Um, so they had, uh, there were a, a couple of um, karate uh, female champions that they brought to double on on some of the shots. Um, but yeah, she was she was definitely great. I think she did a few things afterwards. Uh, unfortunately, I found out um, a couple of years ago that she uh, she passed away uh, very recently. Oh, in it, interesting. That's that's a shame to hear because yeah, she's she's definitely a memorable uh, presence in the film. Yeah, and uh, as you mentioned, the. the the, the red light, I think it's also a very bold stylistic move um, that also brings back memories of, you know, Japanese cinema and exploitation cinema um, and, um, you know, actually Mark Goldblatt and the director of photography um, they shot it with red bulbs, so it was uh, in camera uh, in the way that you couldn't change it in post-production. Um, and they especially did that not only because it would look better, but also because they were afraid that if they shot it straight and tried to change it in post, the studio would be against it and actually they, they, they were kind of mad that um, they shot those scenes directly in red 
uh, of course the, the, the red was supposed to put you in some sort of unease um, psychological um, frame of mind and um, uh, I think it's um, particularly striking because you know most of the film takes place at night and then the, the, the final showdown happens in this kind of um, dojo uh, set with a very bright uh, white setting and then you, it goes to red and goes back to some very almost blinding white uh, in the end and I, I think it, it's pretty powerful in a way to um, to get the audience into a certain um, into a strange feeling uh, that goes well with the uh, with the climax and the um, the final ending almost definitely and you know thankfully you know we we have a, a DVD transfer of this film because I will admit um, my experiences of the, my experiences with the film prior were you know through like like I said earlier um, you know VHS um, I, I also remember this playing uh, you know <laughs> on the last episode we were talking about Red Scorpion and how that would that would be played on network TV and so I remember The Punisher was also one of those nightly films so um, these red tint scenes I, I distinctly remember when this was on VHS and when it was on TV around the time um, did not uh, did not play that well just due to the the transfer Thankfully, now that we have you know DVD and that there have been uh, Blu-ray um, editions of the of the film, they've cleaned it up significantly, and so it plays a little bit better. Unfortunately, the U.S. is one of those uh, one of the areas, one of the territories where we do not have an official Blu-ray release of the film, which I just think is such a shame. And I yeah, feel like there I, would I, be there would be a market for it. You know, I don't I don't see course. why um, Shout Factory could not put out a special edition of this. I understand that the rights are the rights to the film are owned by Lionsgate and my well, my theory on that is that they they do not want to give up the rights just yet as it would kind of overshadow their other adaptations of of the character. That's my theory. Well, there um Whatever it is, I, I don't know why it doesn't get a Blu-ray release in the U.S., especially now that there are HD masters of the film. Um, there are tons of fans of the film in the U.S. Uh, I mean, I remember for a long time, the movie was one of the top sellers on Amazon when it was on DVD. Yeah. Uh, with Masters of the Universe, actually. And... Um, now regarding the rights, um, you know, actually there was a time in the mid to late 2000s that um, the film was in a loophole regarding the rights and um, in 2012, 20th Century Fox uh, managed to get the, the, the rights internationally for the film. So they're the ones who are licensing the rights to foreign territories and whatnot. Um, now, 
I'm not sure if Lionsgate managed to um, keep the rights on it or if it got back to Fox. Uh, so that's something uh, that would need to be inquired. But uh, the other day I was also thinking and wondering if um, if the, the Marvel wasn't trying to pressure so that it, it wouldn't get released. Uh, especially with the, the Netflix TV series. I don't know if that's the case or or or, or what, but um, uh, because uh, other than that, th there's no reason it, it wouldn't be released in, in the U.S. It's got such a uh, a cult following, um, so unless someone doesn't want it to be re-released and doesn't want it to be spread because they're somewhat ashamed of the film. Um, so I, I don't know, I hope um, it will be released uh, soon, maybe I'm even thinking maybe if my upcoming book does well maybe someone will wake up and <laughs> try to get this out, so uh, we'll see. Yeah, no, I mean like I said, it, well and it definitely, it's one of those, it's one of those titles that is just screaming for a release by Shout Factory, you know what I mean, or by a sent by yeah. Synapse Films. You know, they they put out the wonderful uh, Red Scorpion disc. So um, it, it's definitely one of those films, like I said, that is just is screaming for a proper um, special edition release with um, you know various features. And I imagine there's there are so many people, um, Lundgren included, who would um, love to speak about their experiences with the film. Um, now let me ask you. We talked about Marvel Comics and, you know, their other adaptations of the film. I, I, I do distinctly remember when, in 2004, when the uh, Thomas Jane version was coming out, Marvel was adamantly, adamantly trying to do their very best in distancing themselves from this particular version. Um, even going as so far as in the marketing for the 2004 version, both theatrically and when it came to, uh, when it came to DVD, them making statements like, you know, this is the true version of the Punisher. This is, you know, um, true to the Marvel Comics origin. I mean, they so uh, unfairly they were, uh, I guess, well, I say unfairly. I guess I can understand to a certain extent they are a brand by they're trying to do it. But yeah, it, it always felt like they were trying to um, distance themselves and bury this film from their uh, from their catalog, almost pretending that it it didn't exist, that it didn't happen, that this wasn't even anything they had anything to do with, to an extent? Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's a shame, I mean, you know, it exists, and it's not the, the Captain America that Golan produced, you know, a lot of people put them in the same category, but honestly, if, if if you watch it again and don't you know if you watch it again with uh, good faith it's it's really not bad uh, and there's nothing to be no. ashamed of um, but now you know also um, I interviewed a couple of people from um, Marvel people who worked at Marvel uh, um, 
in the in the eighties, and some writers. Um, the the and I realized that the comic book world and the movie world are very distinct, and they can have very different views of what's good and what's not. Um, and but most of them, I I think just probably didn't watch the, the film in a long time probably not since the, the the original release and just kept the 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 image that they got in their head um, that they were so disappointed and and everything and because everybody's trashing not everybody but a lot of people especially in the comic world are trashing the film um, it, it doesn't help to to um, speak of the, the the film in a good way for them, um, but uh, yeah, it, it's beca because the the uh, another thing that I want to reiterate is that m you know the the Marvel was owned by the production company and Stanley himself. Give gave them uh, his blessing to make the film. Uh, some of the writers and editors from Marvel uh, were somewhat consulted on the script, um, and you know also about the 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 skull debacle. Um, I also read some rumors on the internet that. They didn't have the license to use the skull. That's not true. Um, they actually—I never believed that. <laughs> you know, they, they even there were. I'm gonna—I have a whole sh chapter on it, and, and I have some unheard of informations about some of the things that happened. But there even was a meeting uh, to discuss the skull and. The use of the skull in the film between the producers and New World and Marvel people and Stanley and Tom DeFalco and and so um, don't believe what the internet says. There's a lot of rubbish going around. Yeah, well, no, yeah, and I never believed those either. You know, and the other thing you know that I always found interesting. Um, I'd like to talk briefly about the other interpretations and the other um, adaptations of the character. But the other thing that I thought was was hilarious and, you know, slightly ironic in a lot of ways is that, you know, for years everyone just got so hung up on the fact that um, that in this particular version Lundgren does not wear the skull. You know, it's the Punisher and he doesn't have the skull. Yet if you look at um, if you look at the two thousand four version with Thomas Jane there are long stretches of the film where he does not, where his character does not wear the skull. Um, there's the scene at the very, very end where he blows up all of the cars or whatever, and, you know, they, they all um, have the shape of the skull, which, you know, we, we talk about how the 1989 version um, shies away from, you know, using it because they felt it looked too comic booky. And then you have this scene in the 2004 version where, you know, all these flames are in the shape of a skull, and the scene looks ridiculous. I mean, it just looks so um, ridiculous and too, you know, I hate using this term, but it looks way too comic booky. And then you look at the current Netflix series um, where John Bernthal takes on the role. Um, 
it, he does a great job as the role. I, I, I will not, you know, um, knock his performance at all. But, you know, the series, I don't know if you've seen it or yet, um, not, uh, if you've seen it yet or not. No. Um, but, you know, the series is 13 episodes. He goes about 10 of those episodes where he doesn't wear the skull. So, and, uh, you know, my buddy Chris um, pointed that out. So it's just, it's, it's ironic and it's, um, I guess by, uh, when you look at it nowadays, it's extremely hypocritical that people just got so hung up on all these years the fact that he doesn't wear the skull and and all these other versions, he he wears the skull very briefly. You know, it, it it's something silly to right. squabble about, but it is interesting to note. Yeah, th this argument doesn't hold up, and you know, it, it didn't bother people that the uh, um, the costumes weren't right in the the first X Men movie. Well, and I'm glad. So. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I always felt that the, in 2000, when the first X Men movie came out, that drove me up the wall. That you know, for years, fans were upset at the lack of the skull. Yet, um, when the X Men movie came out back in 2000, that all the characters are wearing black leather, and that was deemed acceptable. That was okay. To me, that pissed me off because to me. It was almost kind of, it was almost kind of kicking a, a, a dead horse when it was already down, you know, uh, metaphorically, you know, because, you know, here you have the, the the 1989 The Punisher. Here was a film that was, you know, fairly low budget by a lot of standards, and they were doing the best with what they could do. Whereas the X Men movie was coming out, and this had quite a few dollars behind it, and was getting a theatrical release. It was getting a big summer push, and it's almost kind of like the fans were accepting of that because they figured well you know this is a version that has money behind it so we're gonna support it in that extent and we're and we're gonna you know let it go you know what I mean right and um, yeah go, going back to the the 2004 version of the Punisher with Thomas Jane I have very vague memories of it because I've only seen it once in the theater uh, but tell me if I'm wrong but if I remember it's almost like he's the Punisher in the last 15 minutes of the film exactly um, yeah I now I will say I will go to the 2008 version I would say that the 2008 version with Ray Stevenson is actually pretty good it gets the character um, it gets the character pretty right but the 2004 version with Thomas Jane that was the that was a big one that Lionsgate and Marvel were really trying to hang their hat on as being, you know, the definitive version of the Punisher. The film is over two hours. He doesn't become the Punisher really until the the final act. It spends way too much time on the prologue, on his on his backstory, showing him with his family. Um, it doesn't really work. And the other thing that I think that there's a lot of things that hurt that version. Um, but one of the other versions that, or the other things that really hurts it, is the fact that that it's set in Florida. And I'm sorry, right. but the Punisher is not yeah. a Florida character. You know, at least with the 1989 version, you know, it, it it's filmed in Australia, but they never mention that it's Australia. They don't make it look like it's Australia. It it is dark and gritty. And so, yeah, the 2004 version, uh, you know, it, it's set and it's filmed in Tampa for <laughs> for crying out loud. Um, there are uh, many scenes that take place um during the daytime and during daylight. Um, and there are so many scenes where you know, Castle is just doing silly things that, you know, the Punisher wouldn't do. Now, I, I guess there, there's one argument, there's one school of thought that says, well, 
they were pulling from the Garth Ennis, Ennis uh, series, and that particular series was, um, you know, uh, extremely dark. It had a lot of dark humor to it. Um, so I understand that that thought, that school of thought. Um, on film, though, there's a scene where uh, where Frank Castle is interrogating someone, um, and he's using a popsicle. Right. You know. You know what I mean. Yeah. He, he, the the guy the guy who's hanging upside down thinks that he is uh, uh, that Castle has a flamethrower, and instead he's sticking a popsicle to his back. You know, it's funny, I guess. It's kind of cute to to an extent, but I mean, can you imagine? Dolph Lundgren's character, you know, uh, poking someone with a popsicle. Yeah. I mean, no. I mean, it, it's <laughs> it's it's just ridiculous, um, you know, to watch. Well, you know, even Thomas Jane doesn't stand by it, and interestingly, he even produced his own short film that's unofficial, and it's called yeah, Dirty no, Laundry. Yeah, no, seen it. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah. <laughs> That tells you, I, I, I don't know, I'm sure some stuff happened behind the scenes and I'm sure the script had been rewritten even more times than The Punisher. Um, so, I mean, if if Marvel should be ashamed of a Punisher movie, maybe that probably should be this one. No, and they definitely have. I mean, they have. Um, you know, at, at the time when it was when it was released, it was. Um, it had a big marketing push, and it was. Um, it was. You know, like I said, it was one of the titles that uh, Marvel and Lionsgate were trying to. You know, kind of hang their hat on. In recent years, though, it's. Um, it's. It's. It's become forgotten. I mean, it's readily available on Netflix now. Um, but yeah, it, it's become forgotten, and um, I guess one of the saving graces with it is that I think fans and critics and everyone alike have looked at it and they've said you know what this is not the best version of the character um the the Dolph Lundgren version definitely has its merits and uh deserves a second watch um the one thing that I I love is that people are coming back around and that they're saying the uh the Dolph Lundgren version is superior in a lot of ways to the 2004 version yeah um so yeah, if we if we look at the 2008 version, um, you know the, there are definitely some elements of dark humor in the 2008 version as well. Um, but you know Ray Stevenson as as the Punisher, he's doing a phenomenal job. I would say that um, he is definitely more similar to uh, to Dolph Lundgren's um, Dolph Lundgren's turn as the character in a lot of ways in that one. So I don't know, maybe it's my own personal biases aside, but um, I think that's one of the one of the reasons why the 2008 version works as well as it does. Well, I, I didn't. I'm gonna tell you right now. I didn't even see it um, because I, I don't really care for it, and it, oh. <laughs> it looks a bit too much. Uh, I would have seen it, you know, if it had come out uh, 10, 20 years ago. But nowadays, uh, it's not really my thing. But I'll also say one thing is that you have to remember that um, since the, the 89 version, uh, the Punisher has got a lot, it evolved tremendously. I mean, when they made the film, you have to remember that not that much had come out. You had, um, you know, after his appearances in Spider-Man and a few others. You had the Circle of Blood miniseries, 
mm-hmm. and you had uh, then you had the the first monthly Punisher comic by Mike Barron and and the others, and um, a bit later, um, I think in 1988, you had the Punisher War Journal that came out. Um, but but so when Boaz Yakin wrote it, it, it was barely after the release of the first uh, monthly comic, you know. Yeah. And, and I I think people today also don't always realize that uh, nobody knew about Garth Ennis or you know any of the others because it didn't exist. Yeah. No. No. Um. As we wrap up this, uh, as we wrap up this episode, you know, obviously, I know that the film gets a full hearty recommendation from both of us. Um, but I'm curious, why? Why do you think, in, in your opinion, why do you think the film um, deserves a second look and deserves, you know, um, a uh, a an impressive analysis? I guess um, not only as a as a Dolph Lundgren film, but as a uh, as a comic book based film. In your opinion, um, why do you think it holds up? Well, I I, I think it's you know uh, it, it doesn't it, it almost doesn't matter that it comes from a comic book. Um, it, it's such a gem. It, it's very particular. Uh, it, it's atmosphere and ambience is so unique, and, and you know I, I I don't think I can tell of another movie that has the same flavor or smell uh, you know <laughs> in a way uh, and yeah um, I, you know and it's it's hard to tell for me because of course I saw it at a very young age I saw it four times on the big screen can you imagine <laughs> yeah no I, I wish I could have seen this on the big screen and and, and uh, and you know, and for instance, the the ending always moved me. You know, uh, I just love the music. I I love, you know, um, Lou Gossett screaming from the top of his lungs. You know, on on this skyscraper. Um, you know, but it's it's a very, uh, I think it's a very unique mix of. Um, exploitation Australian exploitation and uh, Japanese exploitation Italian exploitation it's got lots of influences that people don't always pick up on um, and uh, you know it, it's still probably one of the most memorable roles um, yeah. from Dolph um, and um, you know, uh, uh, of course, I- of course, it's not uh, uh, you know uh, an Academy Award masterpiece, and you can tell a lot about it. But it's a very likable picture, um, and, and it's got a lot going for it if you go beyond your preconceived ideas, and if you're open. To, to see it as some kind of weird cinema, cinematic object in a way. Yeah, most definitely. Everything you said is exactly correct. And, you know, um, yeah, as a, 
okay, if you want to put it as a comic book adaptation um, in itself, then yeah, I always felt that it um, it definitely fell along lines with the monthly series that was coming out from Marvel at the time. Um, as an action movie, it, it is extremely similar in a lot of ways to uh, to like a Death Wish type, Grindhouse type exploitation film. Um, and as a Dolph Lundgren film, you have to appreciate it because you know it's it's Dolph once again trying something new, um, and you know putting his all into a new role. Um, and if you look at you know all the other action stars around this time in the late 80s, early 90s, I don't think many were you know experimenting and trying new things like Lundgren was doing. You know. Um, Sylvester Stallone around this time pretty much had already established himself. He had some franchises and some characters already. So he was able to kind of play the same role just with, you know, different film titles um, attached to it. Same thing with uh, with Arnold, you know. Um, so you, you really have to appreciate it on that level in that it was, it was Lundgren trying something new, trying a new character, and going about his method as he possibly could. Um, and if you look at Lundgren nowadays, his, his current career... Um, I, I don't know if he's really going his method nowadays as he was back then, but every one of the films that he is picking up nowadays, he is trying a new character, a new a new little thing um, to kind of add to his add to his resume, which I think is extremely impressive because as Chris pointed out um, in our Red Scorpion episode, back in the 90s when you know they, when home video was trying to bring out the next action star, you know. Um, if you look at, say, for example, Jeff Speakman, was he trying, you know, something something new with his films? No. If you look at Michael Dudikoff, was he trying, you know, something new with each one of uh, each one of those films that he was doing? Not really. So, um, on that on that level, on that end, I think it's uh, impressive and it's something that um, is interesting to note um, for 1989, 1990. Yeah, ab uh, absolutely, and so. For anyone interested, uh, I'll just say that uh, I'm very proud of how my book is coming along because I'm adding a lot of material and new interviews, and um, so it's it's really a, a labor of love and very detail-oriented. You know, the devil is in the details. So I'm taking some time to finish it, but hopefully um, it should come out later in 2018, probably the, the second half of the year, and it should cool. be pretty, pretty cool, and I hope you, you'll enjoy it as much as I enjoyed uh, writing it. No, I'm definitely looking forward to, uh, to picking up a copy. Um, yeah, I, I can't wait for it to uh, to make its its release stateside. So thank you so much for taking the time to uh, discuss and dissect this uh, this this classic in the in the Lundgren filmography. I had a wonderful time, and um, yeah. Also, um, you need to plug the uh, if it's okay. You need to plug your uh, the website. Anyone who is interested in um, Lundgren's cinematic endeavors, um, both past, present, and upcoming projects. Um, I highly recommend checking out the uh, the forum, DolphForum.com. Yeah, and also about the book, you can go on Twitter to Punisher-Book, and the same on Instagram, and on Facebook, you can go to 
the Punisher dot film book in one word. Cool, cool. And we can also follow um, the book and its progress on uh, Facebook as well, correct? Right. Yeah, it's the the Punisher dot film book dot com. Awesome, awesome. Well, hey, uh, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me once again. I had a wonderful time, and uh, I'll be we'll, we'll be seeing you again, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's always fun to do, and a pleasure to be able to shed some lights on some of the things, or you know, discuss some controversial ideas that are uh, <laughs> running around the the internet. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll see you next time. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, um, out of all of his upcoming films, is there a particular one that, uh, I know Punisher was one that was just so near and dear to you, that was your baby, is there another one coming up that um, that, that you'd really like to discuss that I can uh, hopefully uh, <laughs> put you in for and lock you down now for? Well, you know, it's like I could do all of them, but uh, I also like to, uh, I don't know, like, I, you know, because of course I could do I come in peace and show down in little Tokyo and whatnot. Uh, that would be great. But uh, you know, I, I, I'd love to do also the lesser-known films uh, like Cover Up. I'll do with pleasure. And I know it's not the the, the most uh, highly regarded Dolph flick. Um, and of course, I, I'd want to do like Men of War and Silent Trigger, um, you know, Joshua Tree Army of One would be good. Awesome. Uh, or if you have someone else, uh, I can do Patathlon as well, you know, because there's some interesting behind the scenes. Uh, but yeah, whenever you got a, you got a spot for me, I'll, I'll try to be there. Awesome, awesome. Well, cool. Well, hey, uh, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me. Um, I imagine this is going to be um, coming out um, after the Thanksgiving holiday, but uh, I'd like to wish you and uh, anyone who is listening, the few people who may be out there listening, to uh, have, a, uh, have a happy and uh, safe Thanksgiving holiday. All right. Happy holidays to you, Americans. <laughs> happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Hey, thank you so much, and I'll see you all next time on I Must Break This Podcast.